Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So here's the question. The question we asked right at the start of this series about sustainable investing. Can you make money and leave the world a better place? This is like the fastest or one of the fastest growing areas of the asset management industry. It has ballooned. Sustainable or ESG investing, as it's called, is big business in financial markets. There was, at least in my mind, this idea that we could reform capitalism. Many companies have embraced policies that take environmental governance and social issues on board. It's a way for companies to kind of think more broadly than just about making money. Your climate solution as a business would be to reduce your carbon footprint. It would be profitable, and if you did that, others would follow because it's just good business. But what real difference can your money, your ESG investments make when it comes to, well, climate change? Giving people the impression that their investment choices are going to meaningfully change this set of issues that markets have repeatedly failed to solve is a dangerous placebo because it makes people feel good for doing essentially very little. This is Behind the Money from the Financial Times. I'm Manuela Zaragoza with the last episode in our series on sustainable or ESG investing. Organizers of the COP26 Climate Change Conference in Glasgow say that to ensure our planet doesn't overheat, every company, every financial firm, every bank, insurer and investor will need to change. A company's primary purpose can no longer be simply to make a profit for shareholders, as the renowned economist Milton Friedman once argued. Companies, businesses, financial markets have to have a broader purpose, one that, in politician speak, helps build back a better world. ESG investing is supposed to help do just that. But there's debate about how much it can really achieve. And there are even those who argue it lets governments off the hook. That debate is as alive here in the offices of the Financial Times as it is out there in financial markets. So we brought together two opposing FT views on the subject. Cheering the rise of ESG is Gillian Tett, the FT's US editor-at-large and co-founder of Moral Money, the FT team that covers the world of socially responsible business and sustainable finance. And casting a sceptical eye is the FT's US financial commentator, Robert Armstrong, who also writes the unhedged newsletter. Robert first. I think a lot of the problems that ESG claims to deal with, not all of them, but a lot of them, are the kinds of problems that need to be dealt with not by companies, but by governments and citizens. So I think there has been an effort to turn ESG investing into something that it can never be and to have it solve problems that it can never solve. Uh, I don't mean that as a, a, a... a universal dismissal, but I think there's major problems here. 
Well, I would agree with Robert insofar as he says that ESG investing alone is not going to fix the world. Absolutely not. It's important to point out two other things. Firstly, Milton Friedman developed his concept of shareholder capitalism at a time when the Western world was post-war and tended to assume two things. Firstly, that governments were good and worked and therefore companies could outsource most of the really tricky things in life to them. And secondly, that the wider society wouldn't actually know what companies were doing most of the time. Mm. Thank you for those, like, mmms, Robert. Mm, that's a good point. <laughs> they that's a good point. <laughs> they may not, they not, you shouldn't be agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we're here to disagree, but this is a really, the point right. about corporate transparency well, me, is really important. Okay, I've got two points. Firstly, Milton Friedman developed his theories when people trusted government in the aftermath of World War II to fix things, and companies thought they could outsource the tricky decisions in life to them. Secondly, he also developed his theories at a time when there wasn't radical transparency, most people most of the time had no idea what government or companies were doing, and when they did, it came as a shock. Today, it's fundamentally different. Firstly, we don't trust government to do anything today. Secondly, we live in an era of radical transparency, where people, and by people I mean employees, customers, investors, um, suppliers, can see increasingly what companies are doing through that little device known as the smartphone armed with the internet. And that changes things. And I think, frankly, if Milton Friedman was alive today and looked at what it meant for companies in an era of radical transparency and when government couldn't be trusted to do things or not trusted to do things alone, he might think that simply for the benefit of shareholders, it actually paid to think about stakeholders as well. Because the third thing I want to stress is that ESG today is not necessarily about being an activist or trying to change society or even necessarily trying to replace the role of government. It's about risk management. It's about companies recognizing that they need to have lateral vision to protect themselves and their own shareholders and their stakeholders, but also, most crucially, to protect the future of capitalism from destroying itself with tunnel vision. Robert, you've written in a column for the Financial Times that this idea that ESG is a form of risk management you said it drives you nuts. Let me, let me explain that as follows. I think we need to draw a bright line when we're talking about these issues between companies that adopt certain values that resonate with consumers and using that as a strategy. That is a great and powerful thing. Thinking about not just the bottom line, but thinking about what do my customers care about and how can I align my company with those values so that, you know, I can grow with the consumer and prosper with the consumer. That's great. It's very different thinking about products and choosing to buy this or buy that in terms of a consumer product and thinking about it in terms of an investment product. Am I going to be in mutual fund that has oil shares, hydrocarbon shares, and one that doesn't. In the former case, in the consumer case, decisions to drive an electric car or to go with a clothing company that doesn't use fabrics that are made out of fossil fuels and that have a low greenhouse impact at what you will, that makes a direct impact. That's demand that's there that's not there. In the world of investment, buying the investment fund that owns the oil company or doesn't own the oil company, there's always the other side of that trade. There's always somebody else to buy those shares at the price you want to sell them to. It doesn't have the impact 
that consumer choices, what to buy, to consume or not consume, does have. And there's always the opportunistic financial buyer out there to snap them up. We have to be very conscious, all of us, companies in particular, about risks to the business model that come from the consumer. But from an investment point of view, I don't see the same risk calculus. That's what I meant, that the risk management view drives me crazy. It applies on the consumption side, but not on the investment side. Well, do you make that distinction, Gillian? I think it depends partly on on your time horizon. You know, if you're in the business of short-term flipping of assets, which most pension funds and most long-term investors and savers are not, then does it make sense to dabble in flipping hydrocarbon assets um, because you might make a quick buck? No. But what um, anybody who is looking at the question of investing in fossil fuels today needs to think about is, one, what is your timescale? If you're managing a sovereign wealth fund, if you're investing for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it's probably not a great idea to be jumping in if you think there's even any chance at all that government's going to clamp down longer term. And that's where many public pension funds are looking at the moment. Secondly, um, there is that issue of conscience. Do you want to be invested in that kind of thing? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't think it's a problem to have carbon emissions. Um, You know, that's a perfectly valid thing to say. But I'd like to ask Robert whether he'd have the same attitude towards investing in, say, companies which peddled in child pornography. Um, You know, would you think that's okay? Because guess what? The assets are cheap and you'd go ahead and buy it. Okay, I would say a world in which child pornography was legal would be a monstrous world. And my first priority in such a world would be seeing that that law was changed. Would I own those stocks? No, I couldn't stand it. Would I expect my decision or the decision of people like me not to own those stocks to change the world of child pornography? I would not. I wouldn't think it would help much, but I couldn't stand it. And I think that is the same attitude people have to think about with their investments. I think it is fine if you don't want to own a tobacco stock or an oil stock or a company that takes advantage of its workers. I think that is a legitimate moral choice to say, I can't have my capital inside of those operations. But you have to be very flinty about how much difference that decision is going to make. And I think the answer is very, very little. I actually do absolutely think that it is a folly to pretend that ESG or the corporate and financial sector alone can change policy, let alone fix climate change. But what is clear is that one of the benefits of ESG is that it's helped to shape the zeitgeist and the boundaries of what's considered acceptable, not just for companies, but also for citizens but and for governments as well. It's a kind of self-reinforcing loop that changes the zeitgeist. And yes, it can be used as an excuse for inaction, but it can also help to expose issues that we ought to be talking about and by default put more pressure back on governments. And right now what's fascinating as we come into COP26 is that actually we don't necessarily need governments to lead the fight against carbon um, emissions, against climate change. We needed that 10 years ago. But actually today we have this groundswell of action coming from companies and citizens in many ways actually outstripping what governments are doing in terms of the momentum. What we desperately need today to see governments doing is execution and in some ways almost following, not leading, mopping up 
coordinating, providing the crucial levers that actually step in when markets fail to provide the correct policy responses. So we absolutely need government right now, but they need to be working in tandem with the private sector, not anybody expecting that they can pass a buck to somebody else. Robert, I mean, can you concede on that point that, you know, ESG investing at least pushes things in a certain direction and that that might lead to change? I do not concede the point. And this is probably the point of the starkest disagreement between Julie and I about it changing the zeitgeist. And, you know, there are surveys that have shown this kind of thing. It's a placebo. What companies... Where do you see that? so, So, for example, the idea that you get a company a publicly traded company to shift its investment resources away from, say, hydrocarbon and towards renewable energy, that is just one company. You got to ask who's on the other side of the trade. The assets they're divesting themselves of, who's buying them, right? And it's probably a private company because private companies aren't exposed to the pressure of the public market, which is a bad thing and a whole nother discussion. But the point is, giving people the impression that their investment choices are going to meaningfully change this set of issues that markets have repeatedly failed to solve is a dangerous placebo because it makes people feel good for doing essentially very little. Well, how about the idea it's not an either-or? It's not a zero-sum game. Uh, I just think, no, I, I think it's a negative I I think that the idea that ESG is out there making things better, I don't understand how that can't make people more passive. Well, let me say this. If there was no public pressure right now, if there were no companies jumping up and down, if there wasn't any discussion, we wouldn't have been talking about a carbon price. I'd love to believe you, Robert, that somehow governments would say, oh, what a good idea. Let's get a carbon price in because we kind of feel like we need to just for intellectual reasons. Guess what? They've had 20 years to do it. They haven't. The highest chance we have of getting people prodding the governments into doing a carbon price is a combination of the IMF yelling at them, of NGOs yelling at them, and yes, big CEOs of hydrocarbon companies, fossil fuel companies today, many of them now saying, we want a carbon price. You're hearing almost everyone across the board saying, listen, let's get some consistency and some regulation. So actually, I would love to believe that people would automatically do the right thing on the part of governments without wider pressure. I just don't think it's going to happen. I I think that that pressure needs to happen and the effective kind of pressure comes on the consumer side, right? The kind of pressure that matters to a fossil fuel company is watching the number of people who buy electric cars goes up. That matters. And the number of people who make choices analogous to that. I don't think the one that matters is my money is... I just don't understand how this fungible financial capital, secondary market financial capital, how it makes any difference. Well, Robert, can I quickly jump in there and say, okay, okay, why do we have electric cars seeming cool right now? It might be because that nice man, Elon Musk, has spotted a market opportunity. He's been cheered on by investors. Tesla's share price has gone to the moon. Um, Yes, there's a load of bollocks in it. Yes, there's a bubble in it. You know, like there are many things. However, the fact is, the very fact he has done that, coupled with the fact you have a bunch of investors in traditional mainstream car companies saying, hmm, we're not sure it's a great idea to keep producing petrol-based cars. How about you big automakers start looking at electrical cars? Suddenly means that the zeitgeist has changed, the tanker has turned. 
Is it a perfect situation? No. I would love to believe in wise, all-seeing governments that would turn around proactively and say, hey, let's ban petrol cars, gas cars, and have electric cars because we think it's the right mm. policy choice because that's what our wise, far-seeing voters have decided to do. Real world, mm. it ain't going to happen. I would just make the strong distinction between our choices as owners of financial assets. With consumer choices, we know who's in charge. We decide what comes into the household, what doesn't. Uh, with government, we have a voice, at least in democracies, you know, if we're lucky enough to live in a democracy. In the case of ESG, who, who do we have? Some fund manager. You know, they get to decide what the social good is, whichever, I mean, it's BlackRock, basically, <laughs> that makes the rules. As the world's uh, biggest asset manager. As the world's biggest asset manager. So that, that's an issue that, that we have to think about. Who's in charge? And the second question, the attendant question to that is who benefits? So I think a lot of the support for ESG comes from the army of lawyers, consultants, insurance companies, fund managers who charge a percentage point more for the ESG fund or 15 basis points more for the ESG fund than for the, the passive index fund. This thing is a huge moneymaker. And we should also be asking who benefits from all of that. Is it the investor? Is it the planet? Or is it the lawyers, consultants, and fund managers who we have allowed to make the fundamental choices about what counts as the social good or the environmental good? So is it, in the end, is this wave of money we've seen going into ESG funds, do you think, Robert, this is a fad that will pass or is this something that's going to stick around? I don't know if it's a fad or not. What I do know is it's not going to make much difference. It just doesn't matter that much except to the lawyers, consultants, and fund managers to, who are it, lining it up at the It matters to the, the retail trough. investor as well. It matters to the well, retail I think, investor. I think, well, yeah, it matters in as much as the great example that Jillian used before of the terrible, the truly terrible company. If it was legal, would you invest? There are some things you just can't touch and live with yourself. And that is a very legitimate moral choice, but it is not an effective form of activism that changes the world in the sense of political activism. That you have to use other avenues for, such as making different choices as a consumer, such as becoming politically active. So I don't, I'm, I don't, I don't believe in an innocent and all-powerful government. Uh, I'm much more comfortable with the omniscient and all-powerful consumer working hand-in-hand hand with the mildly incompetent but very powerful government to get things done. And, and Julian, for someone listening, what advice, and I don't want you to give investment advice because I know that's not your remit, but what's such someone who cares about the environment, cares about climate change, cares about social justice, diversity, inclusion, what advice would you give if they're looking at this, at what's going on now, this debate within ESG and in ESG investing, what, what should they bear in mind? Well, I think that, you know, if they care about these issues, they should think about whether they want to actively invest in companies which are, never mind avoiding doing things they don't like, like fossil fuel, but find ways to invest in things they do like, like backing, you know, renewable energy or backing companies which are actively trying to have better social norms. So there are ways to actually try and act positively, proactively to uphold what you believe in. I do actually think that engaging with companies that you disapprove of and trying to get them to shift tack is important. Groups like BlackRock are increasingly making even ETFs transparent in terms of what they are investing in and allowing the original end shareholders 
to vote. They're talking about customization of, you know, shareholdings and voting going forward. Try and use that. Think about how your own company pension is invested, for example. Make some noise at the company about what kind of choices they're making. For too long, we've had this tunnel vision and we've screened out the context in which businesses are operating and the consequences of what they're doing. And anyone who says that, hey, ESG is irrelevant, misses a point. The very fact we're talking about it shows the conversation has changed, the awareness is changing, and that's a good thing. Julian Tett and Robert Armstrong, thank you very much. If you're wondering how to check out what your pension is invested in or perhaps which questions you might want to ask about your investments, then listen out for an upcoming edition of the FT's Money Clinic podcast. Claire Barrett, the FT's consumer editor, will be hosting and sourcing advice. You can read more about ESG investing from Gillian Tett, the Moral Money team and Robert Armstrong on FT.com. And I've included links to their reporting in the show notes. And as a listener to FT Podcasts, why not sign up for a 30-day free subscription to the FT's premium Moral Money newsletter? It includes complimentary access to FT.com for the same period. Head to FT.com slash Inside ESG to sign up. I'm Manuela Saragossa, and Behind the Money is produced by Oluwakemi Aledisui, with additional support from Josh Gabbert-Doyon and Alice Fordham. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner. We had editorial direction from Rene Kaplan, and our head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.